There's a motto printed on the doors of squad cars and the walls of county jails. It's a mission statement, and within these words lies the underlying bond between police and society. I'm Jimmy Jenkins, and this is To Protect and Serve. The relationship between police and society has become adversarial. So how did we get to this point where officers fear for their lives and unarmed citizens are killed by the police? And in this time of great conflict and scrutiny, is there an opportunity to repair the relationship? Seth Stoughton is a legal scholar who thinks we can. He's a former police officer who now teaches at the University of South Carolina School of Law. Seth, when you talk about this relationship, you frame the role of the police officer as having gone from that of a guardian to that of a warrior. Describe those two different mindsets. The warrior is ubiquitous in modern policing. It's a fundamental part of an officer's education from the first days of the police academy through the entirety of their career to hear about a warrior mindset or to um, see the the images that reinforce this idea of uh, warrior policing. For most officers, the idea of being a police warrior is so appealing because it offers a courageous and honorable image that they can pattern themselves after. Um, the, the shining knight, the, the uh, protector of the helpless who is defending society from the forces of chaos and criminality. And that's a really, really appealing self-image. But it's also an adversarial self-image. The warrior has an enemy. The warrior fights the enemy. And that's maybe clearest in another image that's often used in policing, this idea of the thin blue line. Most people will have seen this. It's a blue line, a horizontal blue line between two black lines, one on top, one on bottom. And it symbolizes this idea of the police as the line between society and uh, civilization on the one hand and criminality and chaos on the other hand. So embedded in this idea of warrior policing is not just nobility and duty and resolve. It's also a fight, a struggle. Uh, There are very dangerous enemies out there in the world, and the officer needs to meet them hard and head on so that they can protect themselves, protect brother and sister officers, and protect what are referred to in many times as sheep, meaning the rest of the population. We can contrast that with this idea of the guardian. The guardian um, is similar to the warrior insofar as there is a protective role, but it's a much more inclusive protective role. To me, at its core, guardian policing is about protecting civilians from unnecessary indignity and harm. That's all civilians, and it's all unnecessary indignities and all unnecessary harms, including the indignities and harms that may be caused incidentally or intentionally by officers themselves. At its heart, the warrior sets itself as an adversary to some or all of the community, and the guardian very much tries to align itself with the community. So what can be done to move back to this idea of being the guardian? Does that maybe start in training? Well, I think looking at training is incredibly important, but I think it's also too narrow. We need to start even before training. How do we select the officers who we are going to send through training and hire on as officers? 
for example, you can find police recruitment videos online on YouTube. Police agencies put them out there to try and drum up interest because they, like many uh, governmental institutions, need to hire people, right? And some of the recruitment videos are um, very much pitched toward this idea of a warrior mindset. You see officers uh, at militarized boot camps. Um, you see uh, shooting and, and foot pursuits and police canines and uses of force and chokeholds. And there's this pounding uh, bass music. A, a good example for listeners is to check out the, I believe it's the Newport Beach, California Police Department recruitment video. That's a good example of one that really tries to appeal to this warrior approach to policing. This is the Orange County Sheriff's Academy. You have six months to get it right. not the only one. There are also others like Decatur, Georgia has a fantastic uh, recruitment video that is very much based on the guardian model of policing. In fact, the first couple of words in the video uh, are, I believe, the chief of police explaining how the police department is a very uh, empathetic police department that wants to connect with the community. We try our very hardest to put ourselves in other people's shoes, and it tends to make you look at things from all sides if you do that. We manage our people that way, and we treat the community that way as well. It's not about just enforcing the law. It's about enforcing the higher standard. So already a very different view, a very different approach to policing. So we have to start with recruitment and selection, how we how we attract officer candidates and the characteristics that we look for as we hire them. And then training. And training, of course, is a huge component, so I don't mean to minimize it at all. Uh, first, what's the, what's the model? What's the environment that officers are in? If officers are in a militarized boot camp style police academy, for example, then that's going to give them a certain view of policing. If they have to spring to attention and salute in the halls and march in single file, that gives them a particular perspective on what they are expected to do and what their job is like. And it's a very unrealistic perspective. In their day-to-day -day working lives, officers do not march in formation and do not spring to attention and do not salute. So many academies that follow that approach are not just promoting um, a, a warrior mindset, they're promoting it in a very artificial way and not modeling uh, the working environment that officers actually have. So changing the model, the atmosphere of the academy is one example. Another often needed change to officer training is in the area of de-escalation and use of force. At most academies, and by the way, there are a lot of police academies in the country, about some 650, at most academies, officers learn use of force and the use of deadly force for a total of some 120 or more hours. It's by far the single largest block of training. On average, though, at those academies, officers only get about eight hours of conflict avoidance, conflict mediation, and de-escalation training. And here's a secret I'm going to let you in on, so don't, don't tell anybody. Okay. De-escalation is a use of force tool. It is a tool that officers may be able to use in a use of force situation just in the same way that a baton or pepper spray or a taser or a firearm is a tool. But it's often not taught that way. 
most de-escalation training is classroom-based. It's a lecture. It's maybe a little bit of interactive discussion, but it's not taught as a skill that officers can rely on in a tense environment. And that means that when officers are in a tense environment in the real world, they fall back on the skills that they practiced in that environment, physical use of force skills, rather than de-escalation. You did a study where you looked at the force policies of the 50 largest police departments in the United States. What prompted you to look at these policies and what did you find? We did the study, my my co-author and I, Brandon Garrett at the University of Virginia, did the study because that's where the action is as far as regulating police use of force. We wanted to see what the agency policies were saying. Were they providing the detailed guidance that we believe was necessary or were they echoing the very vacuous constitutional standard? Were they identifying uh, and pushing officers toward using best practices, for example, in the way that they interact with the mentally ill or the way that they engage in vehicle pursuits and the like? So that led us to look at what agencies were doing. And what we found was some consistency, but a great deal of inconsistency. It's probably not a huge surprise. We only looked at the 50 largest police agencies, but we have to keep in mind that there are more than 18,000 different police agencies in the country, and they do things very differently. Most agencies, most policing is done at a local level by a city or county agency. And just looking at those agencies, we're still talking about 15,000 different police agencies, each of which has their own separate policy and procedure and training. Okay, so is there a way to get everyone on the same page or at least get some greater amount of consistency on the use of force policies? There is, yes. I don't think we'll ever see perfect consistency. We have so many police agencies that I I don't think that's an achievable goal. But we could certainly get more consistency and we could certainly bring agencies up to or at least very close to a best practices approach. And there are a range of different mechanisms to make that happen. For example, funding decisions. Uh, The Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, the Department of Justice, the Department of Justice Community-Oriented Policing Services Office could provide funding either directly to police agencies or to training providers or policy reviewers that would allow police agencies to, at no cost to themselves, get the training and policy advice that they need to uh, implement best practices. Is there currently any kind of national standard for use of force practices to work from? So there's an accreditation commission, CALEA, the Commission for the Accreditation of Law Enforcement Agencies, that sets out minimum standards for agencies to be accredited. Well, I mentioned there were about 18,000 different police agencies in the country. Do you know how many are accredited? No, I don't. Any how guesses? Many? Uh, okay, maybe half, 9,000? Less than 1,000 typically in a given year. Wow. And in any given year, some agencies drop their accreditation and about the same amount um, pursue accreditation. So we have, at a national level, a very small percentage of agencies that are actually accredited. So one, we could have a much stronger push for agencies to get accredited. And two, we could craft accreditation standards that actually had some teeth to them that required the implementation of best standards or limited the range of things that, that agencies could have in their policies. 
taking this back to the community and these critical interactions that we see unfolding again and again, even if there is progress made in recruitment and training and in policy, it seems like it's still going to take a lot for police officers to chip away at this warrior image. Oh, absolutely. In no way am I talking about something that could be successfully implemented and finalized this year. Policing is a very slow boat to turn. And what we're talking about is changing a fundamental aspect of policing culture. So we should be thinking in terms of 10 or 20 or 30 years rather than six months or 12 months. Seth Stoughton is a former police officer and teaches at the University of South Carolina School of Law. Seth, thank you very much for your thoughts and for your time. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. You can find links to Seth Stoughton's work as well as other information from our conversation in the show notes. I'm Jimmy Jenkins. Thanks for listening to this episode of To Protect and Serve.